Welcome to Winning the Game of Life. Known as Jungle Man at the poker table, Dan Cates has gone from being the bag boy at McDonald's with no friends and a dead-end future to winning over $11 million in online poker, over $7 million in live tournaments, and is a World Series of Poker champion. He has found fame, fortune, been to incredible places all over the globe, and connected with some amazing people. It looks like Dan has won the game of life, but that is not the way he sees it. Dan sees winning as doing his part to help everyone in the world win. He knows he can't do it alone, though. He knows it's going to take a collective effort with anyone that wants to see the same thing. Join us each week as Dan starts the conversation to do just that. On the show, Dan will interview incredible individuals that have made the impossible possible. Those that have won game of life and those that want to help others win as well hit subscribe and follow dan's journey on instagram at the dan cates let's explore anyone and anything that can help make this world a better place increasing the odds of us all winning the game of life and now here's your host dan cates what's up guys it's dan cates uh jungle man whatever you want to call me and i'm here with doug polk uh, WCG Ryder, one of the best heads-up players to ever grace the game of uh, poker. Uh, one of maybe one of the maybe the best no limit hold'em player. Um, also, upswing poker's CEO, I think, founder at the very least, uh, and is involved in all sorts of other businessy things lately. Uh, yeah, congratulations, Doug Polk. What do you have to say for yourself? Thanks, man. Thank you. Strong words coming from you on the heads up front, especially because you won. I don't even know how many buy-ins off of me over the course of our, all of our matches. So, you know, I, I don't know if you're just uh, trying to flatter me out of the gate here on the podcast, but last I checked, I think it was something like 40 buy-ins. I lost to you in heads up, no limit, but I'll take the praise where I can get it. Well, uh, I was the anomaly, I believe, uh, partly because I'm less conventional. And anyway, uh, your results, results overall were better for no limit uh, than mine. I, at least in that in the later parts of the periods anyway enough of that uh tell us your story doug i remember you worked pretty hard to get to where you were in poker um why don't you tell us about how you started uh yeah a little bit about your journey sure so well i guess if we're gonna go through my my progression through poker just briefly i started poker when i was 18 years old i lost my first number of deposits online as i think many of us did uh, finally, I got one that stuck. I I actually had a little bit of a different journey than a lot of high stakes guys. I struggled at small stakes for a good number of years. I remember basically trying to be a rakeback grinder for some number of years. Uh, in fact, I vividly remember flying to Orlando when we were going to hang out and then staying with Ash and Hasib. And I'm on the couch playing 50 cent $1 trying to get SNE while this running bet's going down. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. But I, I spent, I spent way, way too many years doing that kind of stuff rather than focusing on my game and improving. And, uh, you know, eventually I, I think I managed to put a lot of stuff together. I, I learned from a lot of players along the way. I definitely took some things from you and how you played and we hung out a bit and some of the strategies that you used. Um, but I think a lot of it was just playing less tables, focusing on learning, focusing on trying to play well, and then trying to really understand the game better. Eventually things clicked for me, worked my way up to high stakes. Heads up was obviously more of my game. Uh, I got pretty wrecked dabbling in some other areas, but you know, overall managed to do pretty well from poker starting in, I think 2016, I realized I probably wanted to transition to something else a little bit different. 
I played some live tournaments. Those went pretty well. But again, I, I felt a little bit like it was time to kind of move on from poker into some other areas. So I started Upswing Poker. Uh, myself, Ryan Fee, Matt Coletta. It's my first business. Uh, we started with a $10,000 deposit each. Never looked back. So that was a very successful business. Uh, been been awesome seeing what we built there and the value we, we built for our members. Uh, I got into a lot of content from that point, a lot of YouTube stuff, uh, all kinds of different poker-based stuff, a little bit of crypto content here and there. And then, yeah, I would say in the last few years, I've really kind of branched out and investing in a lot of different areas and kind of a focus on the business and content side with a little bit of investing stuff I'm interested in nowadays as well. All right. Well, that was a pretty great summary of of your whole career within like two minutes. I'm not going to lie. Uh uh, I wasn't expecting that. That wasn't exactly the question, but most people okay. are pretty bad at summaries. Um, I feel like if someone asked me that, it would just not come out nearly as pretty. I feel like I want to try just to see. Um, let's, let's go back. To, let's go back just for a second. Um, in fact, one, you did answer at least mostly, partly answer the question. What was the, because probably a lot of people out there who are struggling in poker are wondering what the, what the hell can they do to like not struggle? Um, so perhaps you have, I remember you said that you started playing less tables and you found like your format that was really good for you, which was heads up, no limit. Uh, do you have anything else to add to that that helped that helped you to break through just like barely winning or whatever? I remember, yeah, because it seemed like you just kind of exploded at some point. Well, the thing is, poker is very complicated and there are so many different formats and most people... It's nice to be able to hop from game to game. I'm sure you know you've done this yourself. It's it's fun to hop from different game to game type because you get to think in all these new ways and it feels more fresh. But the reality is there's probably going to be one or two games that you're much better at. And I think a big part for me was realizing that uh, I'm not the I'm not the best at these multi-handed cash game formats. I was never really my strong suit, and I finally managed to find figure out which one I was the best at and kind of hone in on it. And I think that's a, just a a good strategy in poker is to find the thing that you're best at and, and really hone in on it. And maybe in some, some fringe scenarios, what you're best at sucks or you don't like playing or whatever. So you can just try and do something else. But the reality is that everyone kind of has their baseline tendencies and depending on what those tendencies are, it'll make you better or worse certain games. For me, I was always more of a fighter. And when you're a fighter and you get in the nine handed ring streets, you can't fight for a set, Stan. <laughs> you can't do much fighting versus the sets. So I think for me, finding the the, the game where I could really kind of use that skill set uh, helped me a lot. But you have to be honest with yourself. Where do you excel? And playing within those game types is very important for a successful career in poker. I think that's good advice. I mean, it's pretty impossible to be good at everything. And the key to succeeding at something is focusing on something. Yeah, and picking the focus is kind of tricky. I've been actually struggling with that myself lately outside of poker. Um, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, is there any other advice you would give them these days? I don't know how much, how dialed in you are to the, uh, to the grinders scene. I mean, you do have a, well, you do have a training site. So perhaps that could give you some kind of insight. Oh, I remember actually you had like a stable for a while as well. Yeah. yeah I, I had a stable for, for a good number of years, I think I probably staked over 100 poker players, poker players in my life. Oh wow! Prior, cool. Primarily heads up and tournaments, but there was some ring cash, some full ring, some six max, some live. I've kind of backed people all over the place. My most successful stables were heads up and uh, MTTs. 
probably because those are things I was good at. I think it's important if you're going to have a stable that you pick games that you're actually knowledgeable in. The number of times I've seen someone say, oh, I'm going to have a stable in this game and they don't know the game. I, I don't know when that has worked. I've seen it not work plenty of times. But basically, if you're not able to actually step in and fix problems and coach, like with Heads Up, for example, I think of, let's say that I've staked 30 or 40 Heads Up players in my life. I would say 110% of the profits came from five of them, right? So the other 25, 35 players net lost me money. And then probably, frankly, even took more of my time. And then the top five guys, Jimmy, Chow, Jason Les, Donger, Kim, uh, the, the bigger guys I think people would know if you played online poker, let's say five, 10 years ago, those guys basically made all of the money the heads up stable made the entire time. So uh, I think that it's important if you're going to have a poker stable, probably more so today than ever, that you're very talented in the game that you're staking them for. And you can go and you can say, okay, let's look at your hands. This was a mistake. Break it down. Look at the database. Look at the stats. Otherwise, you kind of just have to trust what people are saying and hope that they're good. And the reality is usually if people are looking for stakes, they're not that good. Not always. You get some, you get some diamonds in the rough. But typically speaking, if someone is at a point where they need a stake, usually they're not that good. Yeah. Uh, I have a parallel that I want to ask you about that doesn't exactly... Um, it doesn't... It's The option of being extremely knowledgeable in the field is not really there. But uh, it's much more likely that the person is not... The group or person is not necessarily losing because they're bad if that makes sense. Um, well, losing is... Relative. What do you mean exactly? I don't understand. Well, the parallel that I'm thinking of is investing because when you invest oh, in okay. a company, you're, you're, you're kind of like staking a company or staking... It, it's not as... I actually view that the late, that all the staking deals uh, were not really profitable for the backer as I have from my own experience uh, for a few different reasons. So I started to restructure them. But that's it's a little bit different from investing from a few reasons, but one issue with investing is that you can't, it's really hard to be very knowledgeable about all the different little projects. Unless you just like stick in your zone and only invest in uh, projects that in areas that you're knowledgeable about, which I guess can make sense if you're immersed in that area. Well, with investing, there's different types, right? And if you're going to be investing in specific sectors or specific companies, then it's much better to have a good idea of what those companies are doing and have a, a broad outlook for what you think the value of those companies is today versus where that value will be in, let's say, five years or one year or a month, or depends on your horizon. So there can be interesting opportunities. Like, for example, with poker, you can kind of tell what companies are doing it right, what companies are doing it poorly. And I think that most poker players would have, if they could have shorted Amaya stock after the purchase by Amaya of poker stars, they probably would have gone in for the short because they could see immediately that a lot of mistakes were being made. It was being mismanaged. It was being treated the same as slot as online slots. And, and the reality is the poker players are very different. Poker players care about a lot of things that just, you know, a lot of the gamblers in the other areas don't care about. So I think if you have an ability to really tap in and understand a market or our company, then you can do well with investing. But I also think that there are types of investing where you don't kind of have to make such a specific stance. Like for myself, I really just try to be fairly diversified. There was a nice tweet from Jason Strasser. He's a great guy when it comes to finance. I'd recommend him following him on Twitter. He tweeted his sample portfolio and it was basically, I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, I might get the percentages off a little bit, but it was something like a fourth total market, 15, 20% big tech, 
and then some smaller positions in things like oil and gas and biotech and world banking and all that kind of stuff. And then a small portion of cryptocurrency stuff like Bitcoin, Ethereum, some just decentralized finance stuff, maybe. These are all public. And the rea- right? What's up? Those are like, it sounds like those are majority public traded, publicly traded. Those are all public. Yeah, all publicly traded. So basically the idea there is you can invest in a way that's smart and will have good return where you're not taking a real stance on things. But the thing, I guess I learned this a little bit later. I forgot where I saw this. It might've even been Jason. I forget who said this, but one thing that I learned as I got older was if you diversify, you protect your wealth. And when you concentrate it, you have a chance to earn significant wealth. So a strategy like the one that I just said that Jason tweeted, that would be a good way to take a lot of money and make sure that it's worth more money in five years. It's not a way to make 5x, 10x, 20x in some kind of short-term horizon because you're not concentrating your your positions, you're diversifying them. So you also have to decide where are my goals and where am I at my life? Like for me, as somebody that has millions of dollars and is in my 30s, it would just be completely fucking devastating if I lost most of my net worth right now. It would just be absolutely devastating for all, all the hours I've put in for all the work that I've done. So I'm not willing to play my hand in a way where I might get stacked, right? I'm going to make sure I'm locking up at least a small win every year. That's what you're doing. I'm what? You're playing some tournament poker, it sounds like. I'm trying to get the min cash, man. Going to, well, the min cash isn't bad. It sounds like the min cash is kind of locked up. It's going for the, it's got, it's, it's the satellite table, it sounds like. And I guess first gets a lot extra. I don't know what the exact. I don't know what the comparison would be. But then anyway, the final point I was going to make is it really depends where you're at, right? If you're some kid in your early 20s and you're okay with the risk, you have either a good job or you know you're talented at poker or whatever it is that you can fall back on. I think it's totally fine to, to play pretty aggressive and take some shots and some things that make sense to you or maybe in some markets you understand. But just understand that you can't just gamble it up forever because there's always this thought experiment people say where they say, okay, let's say that someone, you, you can do a coin flip or you can do, you get aces versus fives. What percentage of your net worth would you bet? And then if you could keep rebetting, how much would you rebet? And if you just put it all in and keep rebetting endlessly, eventually you're broke every time. Or almost every time. So sure. you do have to kind of think about at what point does the value of a dollar mean more to hold than to potentially earn it at a rate that would be much higher. Well, I feel like you could use some kind of math formula for that. I mean, obviously, like in my opinion, if you've got uh, like a few million or whatever versus like 10 million, your, nice, your life's not really going to change that much. Or even like a few million to 20 million or whatever. I mean, like what's, in my view anyway, like what's the difference between a few million, 20 million, like, like a night and now you can have another car. Like, I, I don't know. I don't know what these people spend this money on myself or now you can have like a yacht and maybe you can answer this. I think there's a pretty big difference between three and 20 million because at 3 million, well, I guess let's just take a step back. It, it, it really depends on how you make your income. If you have a traditional job and you're being paid a salary and let's just say it's a good salary, there's way less difference between having a 3 million net worth and a $20 million net worth because you still get the same salary either way. And so if you have less money on the side, that's okay. And then also people will give you a home loan because a lot of home loans are income-based and not asset-based. I basically couldn't get a home loan on my recent house because they were just like, where's your income? And I was like, oh, well, 2019 was a bad year for me. And they're like, yeah, yeah, but where's your income? 
I'm like, but I have millions of dollars in assets. They go, that's, but we need, what happened? Where's your, where's your pay stubs? Why didn't you make money in 2019? It's like, well, I lost money. Yeah, but where's the income? Anyway, the point is you can show millions of dollars and there, and, but it doesn't fit the boxes, right? So let's say, for example, you have a $3 million net worth, but you have a great job, consistent income is rising over time. You're going to get a good home loan. You're going to, you're going to have a lot of flexibility and basically won't matter as much. But now let's say, for example, you're a poker player, which we don't have to imagine that hard, do we? Let's say you're a poker player. Uh, Now let's say you have $3 million. Well, you need money to play, right? And let's say you're a high stakes player. You kind of have to have at least one or 2 million liquid just to be able to play your games, go through downsides, whatever it is. So I would say there's a pretty big difference if you're self-employed and need capital to make money between three and 20, whereas at 20, you can buy a house that's worth three, four, five million, whatever, be totally fine. Not have to worry about a lot of your money situation. Sure. Well, I'm saying like in terms of liquid and lifestyle, taking out factors of whatever you need to risk to make your money. I mean, even in the poker situation, can it, you can get like a steak or something and this, this solves the problem. Well, but you hammer your, your income by doing that, because if you're a good player, you take a stake, you're cutting your income in half. If you're playing in games, you could have afforded anyway. So a lot of times as a poker player, it's better just to keep your, your capital liquid until you get to stakes where either you realize you can't keep moving up or you're not good enough or whatever. And then you can sort of put money aside. Um, But you do take a hit on your income if you're being staked. I think there's, it depends on exactly. I mean, you're generally right. Yeah. It depends on exactly what stakes we're talking about and that kind of, and yeah, there are some situations where there are only some situations where it makes sense. Although I think with, the way the current deals work out, it's generally not good for the backer. Is my personal. Well, if you're playing, if you're playing one house, two house, it's good to be the stake. <laughs> That's for sure. Yeah, yeah. For big stakes, I think it's not good to be the backer for a few reasons. Um, let's back up a minute. Uh, so, say you're the. Would you? I still want to go back to these like grinders that are really trying to like grind out and make like a living playing poker because i feel like all these problems are sort of problems for the upper echelon of uh successful poker players if you know what i mean i feel like there's not a whole lot of poker players are exactly in that category i mean there's a lot but not compared to the the mass of poker players i think most of them especially these days are probably just struggling to make a living would you have any advice for these guys to get to at least a situation where they're now going from uh i don't know just just the, it seems like you know the possibility of buying a house is like a realistic thing let's put it that way sure so most poker players are recreational it's obviously a negative sum game so there's not going to be that many players that win I don't know what the percentage estimate of people that win in money in poker is. Let's call it 5%. When you take, think about all of the expenses that are factored into playing poker, maybe it's 10. Uh, it's not a huge number, particularly the low stakes because rake will be so significant compared to the buy-in. So you're looking at a very small number of players that can win of those players that win most of them win very small. So how many people can realistically be, be a professional poker player? And I've always felt like, look, if you're playing for a living, you're a pro poker player, almost by definition, but how many pro poker players are doing it at a level where they should really be a pro poker player, right? If you're making 10 K a year playing poker for a living, obviously that's, that's fine. There's nothing wrong with having 
this job where you're making money and enjoy what you, do, you enjoy what you do, but you can't really make a real living off of something like that. You need to be making a lot more money. Uh, I remember I, I had an argument with Jamie Staples about this on Twitter, where I said you need to be making more like 100, 150, 200k to really make to make a living in poker because you have this problem of your future. Basically, your job will always be getting harder, and everyone's trying to take your money. And basically, you need to be making more money than a traditional job. Um, and Jamie thought the number was way lower, which you know I guess teach their own. But the point is a very small number of people can make money, make a living playing poker. And I think that the most important thing when it comes to playing poker for a living is to constantly be challenging yourself to try and improve your game and not just get in the volume. It's so easy to get in this trap of, and I did this for years. It's so easy to get in this trap of, okay, my hourly is X, X times Y is this big number. Just got to do X times Y. And then at some point you realize that you're just set mining and your win rate has gone down tremendously. And basically you're just trying to log in these hours you run down you're not playing your a game it's so much better to play five six hours of your a game than it is to play 18 hours of your f game uh which is i think mainly where you stacked me over and over again so you know some lessons had to be learned the hard way (laughs) (laughs) uh might be a little off topic there i'm not sure uh i don't mind it uh anytime you uh blow some smoke up my my uh whatever my chimney i'll take <laughs> i still remember that hand where you called my three bet with like queen six of clubs or something queen eight of clubs and i tripled off and you bricked the flustra and <laughs> called me down what the fuck man that was ridiculous you bricked the flustra you had you had the eight of clubs in your hand on a board that was like i don't even remember it was like jack seven five king deuce or something so it must have been i remember what happened did the board like uh i knew the board paired i believe the river was a seven it was like king six seven something like that and then the turn was like whatever and the river was a seven i think that's what happened or double think was my queen high was like valuable i think it was unpaired i might have to find this hand i think i think you just called me the fuck down with just the sandwich and you had like you had one of the cards that was a really good card for me to be bluffing with too, which was just so insulting. You're like, Doug, this is probably one of my worst hands I could possibly call you with, but I just really think you're full of fucking shit here. So I want to call you down. And then of course I had like six high or whatever. It's ridiculous. <laughs> hand was that hands honestly that hands in my top five most tilting online poker hands I've ever played. I was also stuck like ten binds when that it was just that was not good. Well, you got me back in the uh, one drop if you remember the $1 million buy-in thing where you had like, I believe it was pocket sixes with one spade on a three flush board. Um, it, it was something like King five, seven, nine, uh, three spades and some, some of the river and you said something like feels, feels kind of like you're buffing. And I guess this isn't that bad of a hand to call with. And I'm just like, Oh shit. Oh no. I remember uh, that, yeah. Well, that was, you know, decent, uh, that hand alone was a decent return. I feel like you got me pretty good in it. A few other we had another hand in, we had another hand in Ivy's room, remember, where it was like a three flush board and you, you like looked at your hand on the river and I was like, I feel like he's checking for a diamond. Do you remember that? Uh, no, I don't remember this one. We played a lot of hands. It's been a while. It's been some years. I think it's time to have a rematch. A rematch? Oh, you yeah. quit me before. Why that did you quit me? Too. I don't, I, I don't understand that. I was nervous. I don't know. It's the Doug Polk, man. He, now he wants to play bigger. And just like that kind of stuff scares me. Uh, so, and 
and also I wasn't focusing on the hedge up as much. And yeah, I, uh, I don't know. I was nervous, but the, the next time you played me, you played a lot better and I wasn't really sure that I was beating you. Uh, but uh, rematch like uh, to take you down live poker at the poker lodge. What do you think about this? What do you think about that? I was thinking, kicking around this idea. What do you think about if we have like a big high stakes heads up tournament at the lodge? No rake. We get everyone out here. We stream the whole thing. We have a big ass heads up tournament. We get like, I don't know, eight of us or something. Make it a hundred K buy-in something like that. That'd be fun, right? Yeah. Something like that could be fun. Let's do it. I need to get some other, uh, some other wizards of sorts. Um, yeah, but let's get all the wizards in here. Let's get a, a, as many wizards as we possibly can. That's how the magic happens, right? You just get people starting to shoot like fucking fireballs at each other. <laughs> like, uh, Fireworks. It. Yeah. I presume that's how, but I'm interested. Um, speaking of which, uh, tell uh, me and the audience about some of the other bigger challenges you had, like such as the challenge with Ben Solsky. Didn't you also like the play Daniel Negreanu and then like Bill Perkins or something and like win every one, I think. Uh, so I played challenges versus Ben Solsky in 2014 and Daniel Negreanu in 2020 to 21. And then I played Bill Perkins on the side. We were, he was basically just practicing for his own challenge because he played a heads up match with Landon Tice. And so we played some, some 200, 400, uh, on the side, by the way, it was 200, 400, but we played one, two on ACR and just cross booked 200 X. So we were cross booking 200 X on the side. Uh, this is actually a funny story. I forget if I've told the story or not, but at one point I was staying with bill when I first got to Austin, he, he, cause he had a place here. He said, you know, welcome to stay while I get my, my housing situation set up. And so I'm at his house playing him 200, 400 heads up and the power goes off at his house, right? Or the internet goes out. Sorry. The internet goes off at his house. So it's three in the morning. We've been battling all night and he's walking me through tech support to try and fix the internet so that we can get our match going again. And uh, this is just ridiculous. Like I'm at this guy's house. He's trying to get my internet going so that we can get back into a 200, 400 match. It's just, I, I've never played heads up in a, in a situation like that. It was hilarious. Well, you have to be ready for everything when you're playing high stakes poker, right? I mean, some people are that, well, in this case, yeah, just ready for everything, man. It's part of uh, being variance so some serious variance when the wi-fi goes out yeah uh didn't like you give the granu some kind of big handicap i think i know you crushed sauce i know you crushed sauce the computer yeah so i i won i actually wanted a better rate for sauce than than daniel by a pretty a pretty big margin very different matches when I played Sauce, Sauce, we didn't have the solvers out, and he was just kind of doing some sort of weird stuff, a lot of limping. Limping just doesn't really go well and heads up and heads up no limit deep. It just it's so hard to do correctly. I'm not saying it's possible, but the difficulty that you add by doing that compared to the payoff, and then the fact that all your rays and limp ranges, you have to be so familiar with all of them that you can be you can get jungled pretty easy if someone knows what you're raising and what you're limping, you know. I jung I I gave him the jungle in a couple hands for sure in that challenge, but uh, basically I I remember one where he like two point five uh, x shoved the river, but he couldn't have it. I yeah. recall some hand like this from you. There was a hand like that where I think I had third pair or something, and it was just a ridiculous limp pot where I was. Am I really about to put in one hundred and forty big blinds in a limp pot with third pair? <laughs> 
And I was like, I think I have to based on my study. And, and he was bluffing. So, but the thing is limping a small amount is correct. Optimal heads up, but the difficulty is so high that I just, it's just not worth doing for humans unless you're going to spend a ton of time figuring it out. And then the win rate's so low. It's why, why are you even really doing this? I think is the, the point. I feel like we got lost along the wayside though. What was the original question? The question was, I, I, well, I mean, this is a good subject too. Let's explore this for a second, because I think this, the idea that you just mentioned is really useful for a lot of players in a lot of games in that sometimes, especially in Nilliman anyway, uh, the, you know, with, with added more complexity to the game, there's diminishing returns on that added complexity. Uh, so it's like, it's really easy. As you said, it's really easy to, uh, you implied it's really easy to like make your range pigeonhole your ranges a lot and make it so that you just like, can't have anything in a lot of situations. Um, if someone's very observant anyway, um, and I think that's an astute point, especially with dealing with players that, um, or it's not really required or, uh, to make sure your math is really right. Because I feel like sauce was one of those guys where he'd like do a shitload of math and just never really test it. Yeah. Well, we don't know what he was doing behind the scenes. Right. Um, there was always rumors that he had something working in the wings because I know him and his dad entered that those bot challenges, I think the um you know the bot challenge thing the no limit one yeah yeah, yeah. so we, we never we never knew exactly what what sauce was doing specifically and I, I think most of us assumed that he had some kind of tools that he was studying with but the reality is that poker is such a complicated game that it happens all the time where you you think oh i know this spot i'm familiar with this spot i've studied this spot and then you play a hand and then you look it up and you were completely wrong because there was one thing that you didn't think about and oh that's the entire hand like for example in a ring game it could just be being in the cutoff versus being in mid position can totally change what a three bet range or a four bet range looks like or it could be you were uh you were basically three-handed but your study was for heads up now there's a third player in ring especially the nice thing about heads up is that you can get so dialed in to exact spots because you're always studying 100 blinds you're always studying the same sizes and you know what you can get so honed in that you can get a lot more accurate in your responses to things but software has changed the game i'm sure you know that oh yeah it's made it like way better um not that it's made it's made things clearer not necessarily better i don't know about the better part is what i meant to say um and i agree with you which is one of the frustrating things about poker and why, why the edges aren't so Probably why they aren't so big is because it's just so easy to screw something up and it's so easy to um, just not play perfect. And well, it's um, a lot easier than it was before. I, I think the biggest difference now is when you play a big hand, you can look up the answer. Oh, yeah. Well, whereas before you just kind of had to guess, and I hope that was, hope that was right. <laughs> um, made talent converge a lot or edges converge a lot faster or uh, inefficiencies anyway, I should say. Um, more like pe- leaks to uh, be closed much faster, I guess. Um, do you want to talk about your match versus Negranu? Sure. So I played 20, 25,000 hands versus Negranu. There was no handicap on the side. We just played straight up. There was a lot of side betting, though, so obviously the lines emerged. I opened at a roughly a 4-1 to one favorite, and I think 
by a hand one. It was still staying about there. I think that four to one was a, a great price to bet on me, especially given the fact that just besides the fact that I, my background's heads up, I obviously was working very hard. I put everything in my life on hold to make sure that I won. And the stakes are just incredibly high because if I got beat down by Daniel Grande with a heads up, no limit challenge, I don't think I ever come back from that. I, I don't know what I would have to do, but I think that's kind of it, right? You just, uh, you just hang up the gloves, pretend you were never there, head out into the sunset. I don't so know. I kind of, I kind of had to win. It would probably be, be bad for the old poker training business if I had lost that one. Uh, but thankfully, I mean, out of the gate, I, I, I had some losing sessions. We played a live session. That was uh, not a great start. Lost a few buy-ins. Then it was kind of weird at the start because he was doing a lot of weird stuff, like flatting queens to opens. Hmm? Weird, weird stuff. Yeah, we had some single race pot showdown where he flatted queens. And I was getting beat down. He was just killing me. And he's just calling pre-out races with queens, calling pre-out races with ace king, and then I, and then three betting me a bunch. What's going on here? And then it just I I I really honestly I was, I remember I was down three or four hundred k one of the first few sessions, maybe eight sessions in, ten sessions in. I remember going downstairs, and having a glass of wine, and I'm talking to Caitlin, my my wife, and I was like, you know what? I don't even feel bad. I I I'm gonna I'm gonna win this all back. Sometimes you get got, you know. And eventually things kind of turned around by the end. I think I wanted something like nine ish EVB, something like that. And that was roughly the starting line. So maybe ended up being fairly accurate. Hard to say, but I do. We, we both feel like we ran bad. I think throughout that challenge, <laughs> I, I saw this distribution of my hands and my flushes were, were like as low as possible on the curve. I, I hit like no flushes. And then meanwhile, in his post game interview, he's like, Doug, it's all these flushes. And I'm like, Ugh! I don't, <laughs> but you know what? The reality is uh, I ended up get, booking the win. Uh, I'm happy with how I played. I think I played some hands really well in that challenge. There was obviously some punts and then we got the hand histories at the end and it was basically entirely non-showdown. So I feel like when you have a style that's very non-showdown heavy, the variance matters a little bit less just because you're picking up so many pots. No, that, that does seem to be true. Uh, that's my experience as well, though it's, yeah, I would say it's definitely true. Uh, it's hard to rely on like the right situations to make money from people by we're waiting for value really, which is what it seems. I think that's what you have to do. Although I'm not really yeah. at uh, interpreting non-showdown and showdown uh, lines. Wait, did you, I thought you had to give him handicap or am I confused? No, there was no handicap. Wait, wait. So why did, Wait, why do you decide, you know what? I'm going to take on this guy, Doug Polk. I, don't, I feel like I'm missing something. He just he just decided to put on the line, man. Sometimes you got to put on the line. You know how it is. You put on the you've been, you've been on the line. I mean, I haven't done something this crazy. Yet. Uh, I mean, I've done it this outside of poker. I've done this crazy things, but I haven't done it in poker for some reason. While we're on the challenge front, I got to ask you. So what what's happened with the Dirt Challenge? Is it we're calling this? Is, is it a wrap? Is there going to well, be? W- w- is it final? It, it, has something happened? Well, well, well. Let's talk about this for a second. I'm happy to talk about this because me and Tom decided to arbitrate, and um, you know, maybe I should talk about it. Uh, but someone even guaranteed his money up to 
the promised amount. Uh, actually, he guaranteed twice. He, I've been um, first up to two million, up to Tom's word, uh, and then up to one point five million, uh, which was the side bet uh, that was separate. Which uh, which was a text they deleted, by the way. But that's cute. Um, and you know, we arbitrated it, and then basically, I made this particular mistake of going getting very angry because. I, I would just list off proof after proof of what I was trying to say. And basically it was like, none of this fucking mattered to Tom. Uh, and somehow he gets the option to back out of arbitration. I pissed him off. Uh, and he did temporarily. And then we basically made up and agreed. Uh, and I, he wrote out a list of terms. I agreed to all his terms and he was meant to send up to 1.5 and I decided, you know what, let's renegotiate the penalties because I think they're too steep myself. I think they're too cruel, even though he picked them himself. Um, and so he hasn't settled that. He only settled a little bit of that money. And in spite of me basically bending over to all of his terms, he hasn't been able to settle it. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, I think he, in his mind, he, he actually, for him, I think he tried pretty hard to, to make it fair. Oh, I should mention the person that promised to pay when he didn't pay uh, ignores my texts now. And I may have to out him. Um, yeah, thanks for reminding a, a lot of thoughts on that. So for starters, when this bet first happened, wasn't it publicly announced that Phil Ivey was the escrow? Uh, that was announced, right? That was a part of the challenge. Phil Ivey's the escrow. Yeah, Phil Ivey was the escrow, um, and Phil Ivey. Well, he Phil Ivey at some point said he's out of it. Uh, he well, Tom said that Phil Ivey guaranteed part of it, but that uh, apparently but when, not true. When someone's an escrow, you have to both send to the escrow, or yeah. else they're not really an escrow, right? So yeah. at the start of the challenge, did, did Ivey say that he had the money from Tom, or he was just vouching for it, or what? Because in my eyes, if something like this happens, that's why you have an escrow so that you can't get rolled, basically. Um, well, yeah. Uh, he, I mean, so, Ivy never got Tom's money. Okay. I, I feel like Ivy can't be fully absolved from that responsibility because if I said, hey, guys, let's just make up an example. Jungle and... Uh, Antonio Esfandiari are going to be doing a heads up lunges in the hallway bet. It's going to be a million each 1.5 for Antonio. I'm going to escrow. Good luck. And then Antonio out lunged you. And by the way, he would totally out lunge you. He definitely out lunged out and I'm bad at lunges by the way. Okay, good. So you get out lunged. And then with just like a few lunges left, there, a fire alarm went off and then the lunch challenge got delayed for 10 years at some point as the escrow i would say okay well i have the money let's find a judge or let's get a judge and i'm going to send it to the winner but in this situation the money was never there i feel like there is some responsibility for the escrow i know people don't like to blame ivy for stuff but i do think that he shares some of the responsibility and then for tom can't 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 he just admit this is over can't we pay out these side bets can't we settle all this shit I seems ridiculous man I can admit it's over for him. And <laughs> okay. Um, uh, yeah, well, he meant to, I, I can say that he, that definitely he had the intention of making it right. I, I think that basically he 
Um, as just not he's guilty of the planning fallacy, man. He's just really screwed up and he just doesn't uh like he he won't won't tell me the truth, but I've heard it indirectly, and that he just can't basically make things right. I mean, I hope he figures this whatever's going on with him, but uh I think he intends on doing it. I think uh you know, it's just one of these situations where a lot of things go wrong and a lot of bad decisions were made. Uh, I'm, I'm particularly mad. I'm really mad at the person who promised they'd pay because that person straight up screwed me. Um, Ivy didn't really do anything wrong. I mean, Tom also didn't ever send money to, to Ivy. And Tom was the person who said that Ivy is escrow. So it wasn't like Ivy announced that he was. And oh, Ivy, Ivy never agreed. Uh, it doesn't really seem that way. And Ivy sent me back the money that he owed me. So... Okay. If Ivy didn't agree, that's one thing. Actually, Fees did that to me once. He booked a bet with somebody and they sent me money. And then the guy hit me up and was like, hey, you're escrowing, right? And I was like, what? <laughs> I had no idea that was even an escrow. So if you get dragged in sometimes, it can it can work out where uh, the escrow is not not to blame. But if someone agrees to escrow, it would be the, the main point. If you never agreed, then obviously it's not an Ivy. Yeah. That's roughly the summary of that. Um, it probably is getting close to time for me to out that other person or do something about it. Um, ooh. Ooh, uh, anyway, um, I, I see you've taken up a new fitness challenge with Bill Perkins. I, we had a fitness challenge, if you remember. I do remember that. Uh, I believe you won that one. Yeah, you were getting wrecked. Yeah, I, uh, <laughs> I've tried many times to like lose fat, and I've been really bad at losing fat um that has been it just feels really damn tough somehow i don't know what i'm doing maybe just not consistent enough but uh yeah i saw i saw uh bill perkins has done very well how's it going for you or are you allowed to say i don't know yeah i'm allowed to say so i'm two months in i got my first update and it was devastating because i've been losing weight consistently every week i was losing like a pound i'm like this is going great Dropped a pant size. Everything is going awesome. Oh, I got an update, my DEXA, and it said that all of the weight I had lost had been muscle. Oh. Now, I don't know how that's possible because I've been lifting and, and eating protein and whatever else. I'm going to just assume there's some variance in my hydration levels that caused that fluctuation. I decided to make a few changes, increase my protein a little bit, make a few more changes. O- overall, I feel way better. I'm getting stronger and I'm losing weight. So I'm happy with it, but she need to make sure that my protein intake is high enough and that I'm making the right decisions here to, to continue to drop body fat because it's not weight, it's body fat. Like I think when we did it, I think it was weight, which is very different than body fat. Yeah, yeah, it is. There might be variants to DEXA scans also. So I think that with, with DEXA scans, there's very little error in the, in the body fat, but basically anything that's not skeletal mass or body fat, it counts as lean muscle. And so how much water you have in your system will have a big impact. So like, for example, let's say that I'm super hydrated. I drank a bunch of water, whatever. It's going to count that as lean muscle, but now let's say I'm really dehydrated. Basically my fat number would be the same in both examples, but as a percentage of my total body weight, my fat's higher when I'm dehydrated. So maybe I was dehydrated on the second one as well. But the, the problem is that the, the pounds of fat hadn't moved. So that's, that's not a good sign. Um, but going to keep grinding. I made some tweaks and really it's, I get a full year. 
I can't believe Bill, by the way, he went from 24% to 8% in six months. Yeah, the guy's in his same thing. Like the guy's what, like 50 years old, late 40s, 40, whatever. That's insane. Yeah, that's what I thought. Like, this isn't normal, right? Like, we, what just happened here? Um, it's, it's definitely not normal. And I asked him, he feels really good. I would think he'd be, he'd be very exhausted too, is what I would think. Just because, I mean, I've done some extreme things in order to lose weight. Uh, I've worked out two times a day and uh, made my diet pretty strict at basically cutting out all sugar except for some blueberries. And I didn't lose like that much weight. Like I did this for a month and I was exhausted, like really exhausted. I maybe lost like, like 2% body fat or something. But from for a month, yeah, that's pretty good, man. I mean, two percent body fat is a big. That's a lot, lot of fat down in a month. Uh, I mean, I'm saying that kind of optimistically. I mean, this guy lost three percent like every month, man. And I was busting my ass two times a day working out, like, and a very strict diet. Yeah. Well, it's tough. I, so for me. For me personally, what I find is I'm an all or nothing kind of guy in basically everything. This is this is a, actually a flaw that I have. I feel like I can't go kind of hard on a bunch of stuff. I end up all in on one thing and then all out and everything else. And I feel like with diet in the past, basically I'll eat well for five or six days and I'll just pick out one day. And if you think about how much damage you can do picking out for one day, you can wipe out so many days of work in just oh. one sitting of just going to town. So it's really important to have the consistency and the, the discipline and the dedication. One thing that Bill has going for him is that he has a big team of people that help him. I mean, I, I have a good team of people helping me as well. So it's not like I'm not in a similar boat, but basically you need help to make sure that you do things correctly. Like for, for my meals, I don't have to make them, I have to prepare them. They're just all ready to go. So when, I'm, when it's time to eat, I just go downstairs. I warm up my lunch. I warm up my dinner, whatever it is. It's ready to go. It's already the correct portions for everything. Stuff like that is huge. Having a trainer is huge. Uh, having, uh, you know, I have an assistant that really helps me organize my life. That's huge. It lets me focus more on what I need to do. So I think having a, the right team in place play, plays a big role as well, but it's also just fucking hard. It's hard. I know that the st statistics for someone who to make like a big weight loss is something like uh, high 90% of people just cannot do it. And then of the people that do an incredible number rebound, I, I want to say the stat is like, let's say you go on a big weight loss spree within two or three years, 97% of people rebound back to the point they were at or worse. Really? I, I remember it was something like, like that. Yeah. Uh, I don't know the exact percent keeps it off. It was something like 3% or something. Well, that would be, that would be the same thing, right? It'd be 97. I mean, that's, it's a very low percentage of people either way. I think, I think the real thing is you have to make changes that last kind of permanently. And, and for me, so five years ago, six years ago, I was really fat. I was 250 pounds. I'm kind of tall, but for my height, I'm obese at 250. So I looked at the, the scale and it said 249.7. I was 0.3 pounds away from obese. And I just, I was like, this is it. This is the last time I'm ever going to be this fat. And I managed to drop a bunch of weight, but now I've been in this like 210, 215 range for a long time. 
And I was like, okay, it's time just to cut through and really, you know, get my health in order because look, we're, we're in our thirties. Right. Um, so we don't have that. This is, our, this is our prime. Basically, if we can't get together now, how are we going to be when we're 40, 50? It's a fair, we're probably point. not going to be 8% body fat. Like Bill Perkins. I'll tell you that right now. <laughs> well, I, I don't think there's much like merit. To, this is one thing I don't understand. Like what's the point of being an 8% body fat? Because like, who cares, honestly, except for, like, people that care, uh, which is not that many. Hard to argue with that one, Dan. <laughs> I mean, what, what I mean is, like, girls don't really care, for example. and They, in fact, don't really like it, I would say, for the most part. Uh, and, I mean, like, I guess some guys care, like, fitness people care. It's, like, one of those things where, yeah, you look great, but you could also look great and... You can look just as good and it won't like totally suck. You know what I mean? To have 8% body fat, you really just can't have a dessert period ever or drink or just like, and just be working out all the time. And I don't know. It just doesn't sound like a great existence to me. I think around 15% is probably the sweet spot as you age where you're at a healthy weight, you're a healthy body fat, you're in shape, you're athletic enough to do stuff. You can have the occasional dessert if that's your thing i'm not really a big dessert guy uh, i've been drinking very little for the last several months but i'm more of a drinker than a dessert guy but you can have a beer once in a while be fine uh, i think that's kind of the the goal because yeah at some point it's it's not really helping you to be at eight percent body fat versus 12 or 15 even a uh, long run those are all going to be very similar for your health and uh, the difficulty level can be very intense unless you like it if you like it then you know do your thing but most people don't like it also i wanted to mention that you said that you're either an older and all in or nothing kind of guy i think for most things maybe not diet because it's not one of these things where you can just focus on you know that beyond a certain point but for most things that seems like a great strategy in fact that seems to be the best strategy to making like a real change in something and le or learning something really fast like did you have that strategy also with setting up Coin Central? Uh, I think is that is that's the right name, right? And with learning how to invest and these and these kinds of things. I mean, it seems perfect for poker, actually, as long as you just don't sacrifice things too much. Uh, the thing, yeah, is, like, you don't lose balance too much. What is what I mean by that? Yeah. So with Coin Central, uh, I took a more of a back seat there, and we let one of our someone else, the company that was basically running things day to day, have more of the equity. Ultimately we got acquired by a bigger company. I, I don't want to say names of stuff, but all in all, we took an L on coin central. We, we certainly lost, lost money. Um, but it was a valuable learning experience. I think the problem with coin central was, well, there were two real problems. The first problem is that we were so reliant on Google SEO that, Google rolled out this one change one day and it just, we lost half our traffic, which was pretty brutal. And then the other was we didn't have a clear idea of where we were trying to take it for a product. And the reality is when you start businesses, you need to have a clear end game in mind for the where you're going to end up with a product. You can't just be, oh, we'll, we'll not worry about it and we'll just try build the traffic. That can work in some fringe scenarios where you build extremely large platforms, but Particularly in a space like that, it's important to figure out the best ways to go to market. I mean, we had some good moments like BlockFi had a rewards program Coin Central did really well with. That was probably one of the main reasons we didn't get totally wrecked. There was some referral stuff that went all right for Coin Central, but uh, all in all, it was uh, 
more of a learning experience than anything. And, and I'm not involved in the, in the company anymore. So, um, well, I mean, I have some, I'm not involved day to day. Let me say it like that. Okay. Uh, that surprises me a little bit. Uh, yeah. And on the investing side, of course, one of the things, most important things to look at, well, there's a few important things to look at, but one of the obvious things is an end game because, uh, yeah, I've learned that one the hard way myself. I've invested in things and just, you know, you put your money into it and you're just like, uh, <laughs> what are you, what are you investing these days? Uh, these days, what am I doing? I mean, I haven't put that much money into, uh, I put some money, it's hard for me not to gamble a little bit on some, some, uh, private equity type things. Uh, but let's see, what do I put it into? I put it into property quite a bit and into crypto. I made like kind of, you know, I, I just, one, one of the most important lessons for me was to not gamble too hard on these like private equity startup type things because they're kind of like tournaments and it's easy to punt really hard at them. And uh, yeah, it's much better to just have like a solid base for most investments, at least. I'm trying to think of, oh, I actually did invest in a poker site thing. This one seemed really promising. Which uh, site? Uh, what's it called? Like uh, Black Sounds or something? I'm just kidding. It was <laughs> it's it's one, one of the only poker sites in Africa, actually. it's It's got licenses in multiple countries. I just totally stumbled on it, but this one seemed really good. Oh, I invested in... um. This thing called BitZero. Do you know about this? BitZero. I thought maybe, you know, I'm not really a crypto expert that, you know, maybe you know about all these, the latest, uh, well, there's a million of them, crypto. There's so many things now, man. I've got all my money in Bitcoin Latinum. I'm pretty happy with where that's going. And so I'm just going to write it out. Oh yeah. Bitcoin Latinum. Totally going to throw in a ton of, yeah, I I picked up on that. And definitely not a scam that's the best part uh i don't want to you know i don't want to step on anyone's toes here um i actually don't know but i just the way that i heard about it and i couldn't really figure out yeah i don't i don't know about it <laughs> it's just i'm not gonna call out big but well it's i funny, but i'm sure I that but go ahead i'm sure phil helmuth doesn't realize how bad it is but it's pretty bad man it's pretty bad okay that was the I heard that at first, by the way, and then I heard that it might not be as bad. Something like uh, December or November last year, but I don't really know. Um, I will say the the arrangement I heard for our one of the professionals uh, marketing it did not seem to be a very, uh, let's say, hmm. What's the word? One that in, inspires confidence. Bitcoin Latinum open trading at $190 peaked one day at $1,800, probably the day that Helmut was in the club talking about Bitcoin Latinum on social media. And it is now worth $10. Oh, wow. It doesn't look very also, good. Also, here's another thing. When someone puts Bitcoin or Ethereum in front of a different word to sound cool, scam. Just, just a little tip for the the crypto newbies out there. Anyway, I I feel like at some point Helmuth, you know what he'll never do? Let's say they ran this thing into the fucking ground. He would never come out and say, "My bad, guys, I was wrong on that. It was a scam." He's got to go out there and defend it anyway. I, we don't have to get too too in the weeds here. I just I, I get upset when I see people, as someone that's in crypto, promote 
basically scams and then people are going to get hurt and then they're like oh you know crypto it's like no you especially when you're getting paid to promote them i mean that hat can't be can't be cheap he wears that hat everywhere i bet he goes to sleep in that hat we, we, we can move on well i do <laughs> want to agree with you on that and that promoting something that you know or you don't a product that you don't believe in is not ethical in my opinion um I mean, I, I, it's, I think one really, one layer of these kinds of things is that uh, it's really hard to like define exactly what a scam is. I will say that what I heard about it, I would have put it in the sound suspicious category. Uh, that was my first feeling and that didn't really change. I looked into it a little bit, but nothing really convinced my mind. Um, yeah, I do not like this idea of being able to be bought out for things you don't believe in. So if that was the case with Phil Helmuth, then I do not agree with his actions. I will say that with confidence. Um, and it didn't seem like he had any money in it. So there's that. Uh, but other than that, um, yeah. I think, I, I think there's a big difference, right? I think that if you're paid to promote something, like for example, CoinFlex, you better have a good idea of what they're doing and that they're a legitimate company. And so I talked to a ton of people before I, I signed with CoinFlex to make sure that these were good guys. There's a lot of poker players in the company. They're doing good stuff. If I'm getting paid to promote them, you actually be a lot more certain than if you're just investing your money. Like I've invested my money in stuff that has gone badly and said like, I'm investing my money here. I'm doing this. And I took some big L's. There were some crypto investments I made along the way that took some huge L's. There was a one called Bitclave back in the day. They were just trying to be Google. I think it was a pretty, it was reasonable. Um, but yeah, that, that one lost almost all its money. And now the SEC has filed a claim with them and hopefully we get some money back or something. But um, basically, if you're just investing your money, you're saying, here's what I think. That's why I'm doing it. That's fine. But when you're saying, hey guys, go out there, buy Bitclave and you're being paid by Bitclave, then you, there's, a, there's a certain level of certainty you have to have about what's being offered. That's much higher than just investing your own money because now you're, you're basically being paid to get people to do something. I just think you should be a lot more responsible than promoting things that could be, you know, basically scams. And, and, and I just don't see, I feel like there should be a little more criticism for people when they are paid to promote things that really get people hurt. Anyway, that's again, kind of off topic. I, I do. I do think so um, as well. It's just the, the only thing that I struggle with is how do you know, like, how do you measure that? Like in my mind, the only real way of measuring that is they need to put money in. So basically if, I, well, so yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I guess the way that I would measure it is, did the company hire you to promote them? And if the answer is yes, then you have a responsibility as a personality in the space to do some work on who is behind the company why is it legitimate understanding the space before you just slap your face on it? Because, you know, I care about my brand a lot and, and my name a lot. And even though I'm involved in a lot of companies nowadays, they're companies that I've either founded myself or I really believe in. I'm not just basically taking the biggest paycheck that comes along. And I think that as a, as a big name, you have a responsibility to, to do some of that, that research and, uh, you know, let, let your audience know. Yeah, I, I definitely, like I said, I definitely agree. I just think, there's the line between a scam and not a scam is unclear. Uh, and 
or it's it's generally speaking unclear. Let's put it that way. Just because. What's what? How how is that? Why is the line unclear? So like, what's? I think I think I could do a pretty good job telling you scam or not scam. Just in general, if we were going to play scam or not scam. <laughs> okay, what's uh? What's your definition? Because in my mind, okay. there's a lot of let me open. Like they, Fi- they huh? Fire festival scam or not scam? That one's a scam, but I don't know details of it. Okay, so th- that one's a scam. Um, let's see. Uh, Bitcoin Latinum. Okay, how about, how about this? Ethereum Max. Oh. I don't know. Maybe there's, there's a lot of there's a lot of there's a lot of things. I think it's pretty okay. How about this one? How about this one? Dur Challenge. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I guess maybe it is. Maybe it's all kind of gray, man. Maybe maybe life's just all gray. There's no black and white. <laughs> well, I will say that there's a black and white for saying, you know, if someone's layers of uh, ethics are applied within the vicinity is where they should be to how something is run. And if this that's not there, then I guess you could say, yeah, that's what a scam is. Just I'm trying to say, like, maybe there's good intentions and like 10% of the time it could have worked or that kind of thing. But if we're really honest, uh, for the sake of utility, probably it's a good idea to go with the labeling of bad ethics equals scam. That's fair. Bad ethics. All right. I didn't think we'd be going so much into detail of, of scams or not, but I like it. Uh, it's kind of exciting. Something about scams is, I don't know, it's just a funny topic for some reason. Um, well, it's, yeah, it's all, it's all, it's funny until you're the guy getting scammed. Yeah. Well, um, as a guy that's been scammed really a lot, I feel like I, <laughs> I love the honesty on that. <laughs> as a, as someone that's a seasoned veteran of getting scammed, let me tell you a little bit about how this works, Doug. I feel like I can laugh a little bit about the whole uh, scamming thing. Yeah, it's it's definitely obviously let's not let's not do the scam thing. Um, I don't know whatever we can do to we'll call out more scams. I'm happy to call out scams. I think I can I think that's generally a good idea. Uh, not always, but what do you think about this recent issue about cheating in poker and trying to blacklist people and and stuff like Ali getting banned on GG? Do you have any thoughts on that? It's been a big topic lately. That's a good idea. I think there should be layers to it. I mean, this is kind of what the just, in my mind, this is how the justice system essentially came to exist. It's it, just in other areas of life, because for sure, at some point, there's all these lawless people going around and, you know, everyone in the people, uh, all the whole community was like, you know what, we need the justice system, but you, we can't have all these, we can't have people doing all these fucking crimes and getting away with it. And they're not being like a sense of justice. And that's what probably the justice system was, uh, meant to do um yeah and the cool thing about poker is that it for somehow seems to self-police kind of effectively at least at the high stakes um i think it's a good idea but i just wouldn't i just you know as someone who's been guilty of like multi-counting before i would like hate to be like blacklisted because i multi-counted in uh like well i regret it still but in situations where it was like not i wasn't like the, the first person who did it and didn't like do rent what well, anyway 
Are you are you referring to that time when Bill Perkins said this is the biggest scam since Mike Postle or including Mike Postle or something? Remember that time? Is that uh, what we're talking about here? I was like the last person to multi-count and I like didn't even win and I barely played any hands with this guy and offered him money back. Uh, I'm referring to that particularly. I mean, I, yeah, didn't think this would happen. But anyway, yeah, I regret doing that. Uh, I decided my actions were technically unethical. Um, if I broke them down logically and I got punished for them pretty hard, which maybe is a good thing even, uh, when I think about it and like no one else got punished, which is annoying, but whatever. Um, well, you were probably the most well-known person in that group, right? That's probably why I imagine. Well, that might be true, but like even, I mean, really well-known people were at least at least the rumor was doing it that were even more ridiculous than me in a sense, if that makes sense. Uh, but you're going to get held to a different standard if you're the most well-known person, right? Well, if I you do something. I believe that's fair. Actually. I don't, I don't know. I'm not arguing if it's fair or not. I guess that's a, a different question, but I'm just well, arguing that it's, it's, the, it's the reality. I actually, why do you think it's fair? I think it's fair because because with the status comes a certain level of influence and that influence can be used in various different directions. And if it can be used in various different directions, it should be held accountable when I do do something bad. That's a, that's a fairly astute take. There can be exceptions. Yeah. I mean, also like if you read the books about how to be a proper leader, like they always take ownership all the leaders always take ownership of their mistakes. And, and if you think about it as a leader, uh, if you, if you're going to like fall into that category, you have to, uh, you have to take ownership basically. And that's just the best way to do things. It's the most beneficial way of doing things. Um, so sometimes it's brutal too. On more than one occasion, I've been involved with a decision at a company that I didn't agree with and I voted against, and then it blew up publicly. And then because I'm the face of the company, I had to go out there and be like, we believed in this, even though I voted against it. That's brutal, man. Because what are you going to, what are you going to do? Actually, my business partners did that. I didn't want it. You look like a bitch. You just have to go out there and you just have to suck it up and you just got to take one. Yeah. It's, it's that one's really tough. I I have to think about that one because that would just be so fucking tilting. Um, yeah. I mean, at least this one was like my fault. Uh, yeah, I just think if you're going to have that like level of power, you have to be held like it, it, the level of the power has to be held accountable. Like otherwise it's cheating. With great power. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think actually like something like that is a problem with today's society. And I do think there should be a list. If people do something bad, that they should be put on the list. And but as long as it's it should be like appropriate, it shouldn't like combine like, you know, not paying a massive debt with, uh, it should be more specific. It should just be, what if defenders and this is why, what if somebody hypothetically threw a bottle in Bobby's room at a wall or something, just hypothetically speaking, where would that go on the list? Uh, a good question. Uh, this is a really interesting hypothetical situation. Totally hypothetical. I just, I don't even know what, what made me think of it. Um, for the record, that's not, uh, I believe that no one actually did that, but I do believe that someone may have uh, uh, dropped a bottle on the floor. Oh, okay. 
for that one, I don't know. Uh, disturbing the peace. Is there like some kind of uh, offense for that? A warning, light, a strong, stern warning. <laughs> a stern warning. All right. Uh, yeah. Um, on that note, I mean, I would presume that people could like get off the list somehow. It's you know, you know, like the equivalent would be in the justice system. You know, you pay your sentence, and then you can do community service or whatever your sentence is, and then they get you like out of jail. I don't know. How it works. I think I think that the, the problem with a lot of this stuff is. So I look at this as a card room now, right? Because I'm an owner in a card room. Yeah. Would I want to just ban people for offenses in other areas? And I can see some kind of good arguments for yes. But then the other thing becomes, how are we going to fairly enforce that, right? Am I only going to, we're only going to ban people that have cheated in the most blatant ways that are more provable? What about people that were playing smaller stakes? What about people where we're not entirely sure? What's the line that we're going to set on who we ban? That seems kind of hard. That's a really tough question. And also, like, I could see that being better if like you united with all the just came to a mutual agreement with all the other poker rooms because what would happen is those people would go to another poker room and well maybe i guess like it's hard to like make that stand for justice and just turn down say like you'd have to turn down a lot of big like whales and things like that like usually the people who do these things are the people who are um for sure, more often than not, uh, are the people who are losing a lot. That's a tough subject in general, too, because poker has this weird thing. Actually, l- let me ask you this, kind of, kind of segueing a little bit, and I'm not trying to become the host here, but I'm just kind of interested in your thoughts. Have you played on High Stakes Poker? High, high Stakes Poker? Is that like a TV show? Do you not know what High Stakes Poker is? I think it's, I think it's a TV show, right? Yeah, it's a TV show. They brought it back for a couple seasons. Oh, okay. I uh, don't know. Well, that was an easy segue. Let's go back to the cheating topic. All right, let's go back. I'm thinking about one day, by the way, at the lodge, once we get our full stream set up, doing like high stakes poker Texas style and doing like our own, like, I don't know, I want some like boots and like Texas themed shit and like maybe some shotguns and like a bunch of cash on the, maybe some Rangers with mustaches and I don't know. We're we're like got like a lodge and there's like some stuffed animals on the wall that were hunted and like piles of cash and like someone's got an oil barrel oil behind them. They can raise you like three barrels of oil on the river. I don't know. I I think something like that needs to happen at some point here in Texas. I think that'd be pretty sweet. I'm in, of course, as as a fellow American. I'm in. I'll bring my uh, uh, Nerf gun with me. Are we allowed to shoot shoot Nerfs at people when uh, they lose or they win or lose? I'd have to think about that. I don't know if shooting people with fake guns on our stream would be a great thing in today's environment, but you know, let me, let me, let me run it by the team and I'll get back to you, but definitely bring your barrels of oil. We would love that. Or your cattle, any cattle you could just throw into the pot. Well, as I'm currently in India, I will be, you know, the more I've learned about cows and why they're apparently holy, I uh, will be getting a cow uh, at some point because apparently these you know, also the aliens were abducting specifically the cows. That's what they go for. I think there's something to this. Aliens abduct cows? Yes, aliens abduct cows. That's, uh, if you've ever watched any cartoons, you would know. And, um, uh, you know, like, 
cow poop is apparently quite a holy thing. Uh, Did not know. In India, my uh, my friend who got married uh, was handed some cow poop as he's like on his uh, chariot on the way to his fiance on the night of his marriage. So wow, to this, there's something to this cow thing. I didn't know. I guess I've not watched cartoons. Yeah, that surprised me because I know you play video games. Yeah, I was a big gamer. Yeah. Video games are fun, man. You you played some video games too. Yeah, um, I would imagine they would be helpful for poker, and and not necessarily an obvious way. Would you say that they've helped you with poker? For sure. I th- well, because they teach you how to think strategically, how to solve problems, and poker really is a problem-solving game. You know, I would think that they a big way that they teach you is that they teach you to like get back on your feet when you lose another good another good point kind of depends on the game type but yeah that that's another another good way they teach you i, I guess what i like most about it so like my game of choice when i was younger was warcraft 3 and it's an rts game so you have to make armies and fight people and when you lose you have to take a it's a one-on-one game so when you lose you take responsibility for your, lo- your loss you look at the replay, you figure out what happened, you fix it. And so I learned that it doesn't really matter how I feel about who should have won. It's who won, what mistakes were made. And I think having that viewpoint from a young age helps you a lot when you go to poker because then you're not complaining, oh, no, a jack came, I'm so unlucky. You're thinking about what, what could I have done to make sure that I played my hand correctly? And how can I in the future make sure that I, optimal, I basically have the optimal chance of winning? So I think that's the helpful thing, at least for me, uh, was that aspect of it. That makes a lot of sense because perhaps other people, um, I don't know. I don't know how I'll caught up in that, in their losses that other people are, um, are actually in. But I can definitely see the strategic element coming to play because a lot of people don't know how to st- think, to st- think strategically about how to solve their problems. Uh, it just feels more like a thing that, that like certain kind of uh, intellectual games have to be have to have to be used to condition for because it's just an unusual way of thinking. Um, I also saw that you play chess. I didn't know that. Terribly. I mean, I played when I was younger. When I was a kid, I was good for my age, and now I'm just brutal. Now I just play an occasional game just because I, I guess I want to feel bad about myself or something. I don't know why I do it. <laughs> I un- I uninstall chess.com regularly and then I just say, you know what, I'm gonna reinstall and I just get wrecked immediately. And I think, why did I do this? And I just do that cycle over and over. I, I don't know. I like the pain. Hard to say. Getting your ass yeah, I I, I I play casually, very casually. But you don't ever just like you don't ever just get sick of crushing and like business or whatever, and you say, you know what, I'm gonna like get my ass kicked for a second and then uh Ooh. Yeah, I don't know. Getting your ass kicked sucks. Do you say humbling? So? Uh, well, I'm kidding a bit. Um, oh, I wanted to ask you particularly about another thing that you reminded me of uh, when you're talking about poker, how if you mess up like one little thing, it will uh, change everything. I don't know if you see this distinction at all. Um, I can see it in some degrees, but uh, pickup actually. Well, if you want to call it that, but like dating. Uh, would you agree with that assessment or... Where small things can, what do you mean exactly? If you mess up small things in dating, or if you're like, how do you say, 
if you don't know exactly how to respond to someone's emotional state in some situations, this can apply for relationships, but usually in relationships, you have a time window to actually fix it and contemplate. Um, but when you're dating, if you, there's all sorts of mistakes. This is a weird perspective, but there's all sorts of mistakes you can make. Um, especially, you know, if like a guy is younger and doesn't know what's going on and in today's market, I don't know. Yeah. I guess you're out of the game for a while. So maybe you don't know, or maybe it was different back in, uh, your day when you were searching for, uh, a wife and all that. Well, back in my day, you had to hunt your prey in the wild. Nowadays, it's all apps and whatnot. So I, I think that's probably changed things pretty drastically. I saw this this study that basically, because of the prevalence of dating apps, a smaller number of men than ever are having a larger degree of success than ever. And so it's basically making it so that the people that are most likely mates, for, I mean, for both genders, I'm sure, uh, basically just get way more choices. I mean, for, for, for attractive women, they've always had the pick of the litter, but for now it's a little more like that for attractive men. Um, so I feel like dating has changed somewhat drastically because of the introduction of online dating. Like when I was single, online dating was for old people. Uh, at least that's how, that's what it felt like. I, I'd never, I've never been on Tinder, never been on any of those accounts. Um, I met my wife 10 years ago, right. Or nine years, uh, but it's about 10 years ago. So, um, it was a little bit different. You had to go out there and actually talk to people and, you know, introduce yourself and stuff. I, I think the biggest thing with the biggest thing when it came, when it comes to trying to meet women is you really need to avoid be, being creepy because if they get even a, a hint of you're weird in the first 10 seconds, it's over. You will never overcome that. So you have to try and be, try and be genuine and kind of funny out of the gate. It was always sort of my stance, just open with something kind of stupid and funny, but just like that come across as just, you know, you're joking around. Uh, was normally my was normally my go-to and then kind of just wing it from there but the first five ten seconds are by far the most critical when you meet anyone and and not that's not even just for dating that's for people in general when you meet someone you get a bad impression 10 seconds in really hard to overcome that i guess that's true uh yeah definitely with women that's true that's a million percent um there's still a lot of going out and that kind of thing these days there's a lot of going out these days yeah yeah of course uh you know you're right about how online has really changed things a lot as it's happened actually um but uh there's still plenty of uh yeah there's still plenty of going out basically have you seen that study where it set, it shows how men rate women and how women rate men on a scale of one to ten uh, and go ahead Oh, I was going to say, so it's basically like, so men, when they rate a woman's attractiveness, they give not very many women a one, more a two, most women a three, less a four, and, and the least a five. So it's like a curve. It's normally... The way we, sorry, what'd you say? It's normally distributed. Yeah. When women rate men, the second most common thing you can be as a man is a one. The most common is a two. It's hard to be averaged. There's not many threes. And then there's basically zero fours and fives. So pretty much the way men rate women is sort of equally along a curve. The way women rate men is they're all either ugly or okay. Uh, and then once in, a, once in a while, a four or five squeaks through. Yeah, that appears to be true. Um, I mean, I don't know what to really do about that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's, just, it's, it's just a thing. It's not anything you can do about it. I'm just, it's just the way that it's just funny like that. Uh, yeah, this is one of these things that feels like really 
completely ridiculous. Um, and I mean, what was more troubling for me, the, do you, would you, do you know what the biggest, the most important, uh, trait a guy can have, um, statistically for dating, what the biggest Hmm. thing is? It's not that hard to guess. I think I would say confidence. No. Money? No, definitely not. Sense of humor? No. So obviously not attractiveness. That's too that's too on the nose. That one's not bad. That one's pretty high up there. Confidence is probably pretty high up there too. Height. Oh, height. Well, yeah. So I guess that's part of okay. Height. Yeah, th- that's for sure true. No, it's actually it's it, the it, I'll have to show you a graph of your if you're curious, but the graph is completely ridiculous. Like if you're at like five, seven or lower, it, it, there's something like 20% of women that like go for guys like this height, and then it goes exponentially higher after around like five, eleven, or six foot or so. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Height height makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Well, I don't know what to actually do about this. Uh, I don't know. I'm not really, I just thought, I, th- I just thought the game of picking up women uh, as a really, it just feels, it's one of these things where you really have to like, really have to know people, let's put it that way. You really have to know women because you really have to like, yeah. It's one of those things where social skills is really important, basically. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I, I obviously social skills are that's the whole name of the game when it comes to to meeting women. I will say, when I was in my early twenties, it was way more about going out and trying to meet girls and get laid and all that kind of stuff. And then you kind of reach this point where you're like, long run, this is going to be way too much work, and I really just want to meet someone that I gel with, that I'd like to spend my life with. And so I think your goals change. And looked like I had some really fun nights out on the town and uh, some good stories were had along the way. But then you realize eventually it's just you, you want something that's more compat- compatible for your long term life. And uh, dating can get there's a lot of variance. I feel like when you're single, the highs are higher, but the lows are so low. Whereas when you're in a good relationship, it's just consistently good. That's a good way of looking at it. I, uh, yeah. Yeah, I would say something like that. That is true. I mean, and I basically came to the same conclusion as you, is that, uh, is that you know, chasing single women, you know, maybe if you're like a 10 out of 10 kind of guy, it might be the easiest ever. But uh, otherwise, it, there's quite a bit of effort to it. Um, I found like some easy ways of doing it. Um but yeah, I, I think a lot of guys eventually come to the same conclusion that they just want someone to spend their life with. Um, if you figure that game out, that would be really valuable. And uh, yeah, that that's that's a tough one for a lot of reasons. Um, and uh, yeah, uh, it's it, it makes it a lot easier to focus on work and that kind of thing. Yeah, definitely. I mean, that's been... A lot of the reason why I think I've had success in the last 10 years is because I've had a stable, good relationship without swings. So I feel like I've really managed to, you know, work hard and lock in and 
Caitlin's very supportive of me and what I do. And we kind of have specific roles and we, we have kind of more traditional roles where she does more house stuff and takes care of me and the dogs and everything. And I do more of the making money. Although I will say in the last year, she's branched out a lot. We launched a self tanner brand called Naru together. Uh, she came up with the formula herself. She was in the, she was in the lab beakers and shit full spent months just like tinkering with her formula I, we have a phenomenal product she's in the process of making some new products as well for our line and then she also has an etsy shop where she sells disney ears as like a hobby so she makes like sparkly disney ears that people buy when they go to disney they, they order some ears it's pretty cute mm-hmm. uh, so Good. she's done, she's doing some more businessy stuff that these days as well but um you know we she's just been very supportive of when i have to work and put in long days she understands like that's just what's necessary to kind of succeed in the scale I want to succeed at. And uh, we're on the same page with that, which is, which has been great. That's awesome. It sounds like you have the dream actually. Uh, like really that, that if I had the, the great partner, the one that's actually helping in the business sense and also, you know, your finances sorted and all that stuff. And yeah, it sounds like the dream, man. It's good. I'm very, very happy. Where do you find girls that help? with like business ideas and stuff. It feels like so many girls these days just don't have any hobbies or anything. Or probably not into, cl- probably not into club. Yeah. Well, the club is a bad place to look also statistically. Um, I have to get creative with these kinds of things, but uh, yeah. Uh, congrats. What are your you. plans? What are your plans for the future? Um, you said you've been doing some investing. Uh, yeah, I know you opened Poker Lodge. Do you have any other business kinds of plans? Um, you said you wanted to succeed at like a great, at a great scale. For now, I'm just going to keep hammering away on all the things I'm involved in. I have plenty. I think over the next three to five years, I'll probably focus more on one or two of the businesses that make the most sense to focus on and maybe find some more introspection on what I'm doing in my life and what, where I want to go. I spent a couple of years really just kind of just trying to figure things out and I didn't come to any good conclusions. And so the last, let's just call it year, I've been kind of hammering away to just, just to get back in the mix and be active. I, I do foresee myself moving a little away from content and a lot of content for six years now. The content grind is, it weighs heavy and it never ends. And I think I would probably prefer to do a little bit less content in general, but I'll still do some, I think. We'll see. But anyway, I guess what I would say is I'm going to focus on what's on my plate for now. It's a full plate. And then in a couple of years down the road, I'll evaluate and figure out what makes sense to go, where to go from there. Okay. So maybe less content. Uh, is there any particular reason why you picked to open up a poker room and Oh, actually, or even like a poker site, really. I wouldn't have thought that was a great idea, frankly, because it seemed like you were one of the later poker sites to open up. I didn't think that, you know, I thought you had quite a bit of competition, frankly. And uh, what do you mean by poker sites? Um, upswing. Well, upswing's a training site. Yeah, that's what I meant. Not, I meant yeah, to- okay. So training. Well, I, I think we had a, a novel way of going about things. We used a course format. And we use a lot of digital marketing techniques that I think most of the companies at the time were, well, none of them at the time were using and most of the ones today aren't using. So mm-hmm. we felt like we had, we had an interesting way to kind of build the brand. And I'm still, I will still say, I'm upset with you about this because I told you over and over again, come to Upstream, we'll do something together. And then I see the run it once jungle video. I came to you before I went with them. Sort of. It was kind of vague. It was vague-ish. 
We can talk. We'll 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 we'll, we'll check the logs. It was vague-ish. But the, the question is, if we asked three judges, was it reasonable or not? Who would win? Um, I feel like I feel like I might win. We, I'm we just referencing. Remember that prop that we had back in I the mean, day? I should have. I should have. I mean, I guess I like. I probably. Uh, I mean, the reason why I held out for a long time was because of uh, I was loyal to someone else, but then they like didn't do anything else. Uh, so, well, I was I was mainly just taking the opportunity to refer to that heads up sit and go bet that we had. Remember that? Uh, we oh, asked three different one. arbitrators. Oh yeah, that one. That one. Um, that one. If I had a guess, I was uh, more unreasonable. Uh, do you remember when Kato ruled against me in that? Do you remember that? Yes, I did. Do remember. And then he's like, "The reason I'm ruling against you is because you should know better than him." And I'm like, "What? <laughs> I lost an arbitration because someone just said point blank, I'm holding you to a higher standard. Like, what the fuck is that?" Sorry, I'm still I'm still on tilt about that. Well, uh, fucking ridiculous. I I have admitted defeat on that one. Um, yeah, I admit defeat on that one. It All right. really seemed like that was the central theme of this argument, from what I remember. Uh, uh, a lot of stories, man. A lot of good times. Of stupid things I did when I was younger. I feel like these days, you know, you gotta do some stupid things, basically. Well, you have to. Well, I feel like now that we're older, we can recognize some of the stupid shit that we did and learn from it. And that's that's what life's all about, right? Yeah, yeah. Particularly if you do lots of stupid things. As a seasoned veteran in in getting scammed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm definitely a I believe I qualify for the veteran category in that particular department. Anyway, uh yeah, well, uh it's been great having you and uh looking forward to your continued success. Um who knows, maybe you'll find some big ambition. Um, I don't know. It's hard to say where I'll be going next. I didn't expect a poker room. Maybe no one did. did. Uh, why no not? No one did. Is it is it for like some other reason other than money? Is it for money? I don't, I don't know. It was just a it was a slam dunk. I feel like we're gonna we're gonna have some good future events. We'll find some new locations to expand to. I think that we'll grow this business tremendously. Uh, I just think I just thought it was a good spot. You know, sometimes you gotta take your spots. You know, sometimes the simple play is the right one. Um. Yeah. Well, great having you on the show, and uh... I'll have you on my show sometime. Okay, I'll be good. to come. Sounds good, man. All right. All right, peace. See ya. Thank you for listening to this episode of Winning the Game of Life. Tune in next week for another great episode. Of course, hit subscribe and follow Dan on Instagram at the Dan Cates. 